So one of Stalin's thoughts was, well, if we removed the Jews from where they are, both from where they were annoying the peasants who had lost their land, and when where they are annoying people in the major cities like Odessa by competing with them for jobs, if we take them all and ship them out, but tell them for the first time in hundreds of years, they are going to have a land of their own, well, they'll go, right? Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the show. This is episode four of season six, and today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Alina Adams. She is a New York Times bestselling author, and her latest book, My Mother's Secret, is all about the Jewish autonomous region that was established by Stalin um, between Russia and China. So she's going to tell us everything, well, not everything, but a lot of what she learned about that and the book. And um, it's a great conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. So we will get right to it. Alina, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Your latest novel, My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region, released last November. Can you tell me about this book? Well, this book requires a little bit of background in that I myself was born in the former Soviet Union. I was born in Odessa, Ukraine, a place that a lot more people are aware of now than they were first when I was born there, than when I immigrated with my family in the 70s. I did a book in 2020, a book that came out in July of 2020. By the way, if someone ever asks you, want to release a book in a pandemic, go, eh, not so much. But the date had already long been set with with Collins, And so that book took place in the Soviet Union. It took place in the Soviet Union in the 1930s during Stalin's Great Terror. Mm -hmm. It took place in the Soviet Union in the 1970s during the uh, Jewish Refusenik movement and in present-day Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, which is a very heavily Russian-speaking community. The feedback that I got from the readers of that book, The Nesting Dolls, was they found that the section that took place in the 1930s was the one that was most interesting to them because it was the one they'd heard least about. So many people said to me, well, we definitely know what was going on in Western Europe in the 1930s and the 1940s, but there's so little written about what was happening in Eastern Europe at that time period. So when it came time to doing my second book, I knew I wanted to be set in the Soviet Union. I knew I wanted it to be set during the 1930s. And when I went looking for an interesting place to set it, because I'm one of those writers who thinks setting is, once you've got your setting, you've almost got half your plot right there, because Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's what happened historically. I started doing research, and I found out, and there's a wonderful book by Masha Gessen called Where the Jews Aren't. Mm -hmm. I found out that almost 20 years before the establishment of the state of Israel, there was a Jewish autonomous region created in the Soviet Union by that great friend of the Jews, Joseph Stalin, who (laughs) thought that he could solve a lot of the problems that were going on in his country at the time by creating a, well, not creating, the spot of land existed by basically convincing Jews, not just of the Soviet Union, Jews, not just of Eastern Europe, but Jews from the Americas and from South America and from North America, that they could finally have a Jewish homeland under the auspices of the USSR on the border between Russia and China. 
And once I found that setting, then that everything clicked for me because talk about a piece of history people really don't know much about. Right. Yeah, I had never heard about this and it seems kind of mind-blowing to just like let's send all the Jews to this one part of the country. Well, to be fair, let's send all the Jews to is a well time tested policy. It's yes. been tried all over the world. This was the idea was twofold. First of all, Zionism was illegal in the Soviet Union. So um, that was one thing that uh, Stalin was countering. Second, in the 1920s, Palestine was a non-starter. It wasn't going to happen. We had just had World War II. The yeah. English had just taken it over from the Turks. There was no way anything was going to happen there. And on top of which, what you have is after communism, after 1917-1918, a lot of people who owned land had it taken away from them. And it was distributed to people who hadn't owned land before, which included Jews, which upset a lot of the peasants who had had their land taken away and given to people who they had um, never even considered having to share with. On top of that, a lot of Jews from the countryside end up coming into the city, into the cities, and now now they're competing with low-skilled laborers for work. And again, talk about something that is not a unique situation. How right. many times in history have we seen, because of war or some other upheaval, immigrants coming into major cities? Most of them are unskilled laborers. Now they're competing with other unskilled laborers for the tiny pool of work. So one of Stalin's thoughts was, well, if we removed the Jews from where they are, both from where they were annoying the peasants who had lost their land, or actually the kulaks who had lost their land, and when where they are annoying people in the major cities like Odessa by competing with them for jobs, if we take them all and ship them out, but tell them for the first time in hundreds of years, they are going to have a land of their own. Well, they'll go, right? Mm, wow. So why did you want to write about this? I mean, you were looking for something to write about after um, the nesting dolls. What gripped you about this? I mean, when I read the prologue, I think I told you in an email that it gave me chills, the end of the prologue. <laughs> so um, yeah, it really gripped me. So what gripped you about this autonomous region that you felt like you just had to tell the story? Well, first of all, just the fact that, as you said, and so many people have said to me when I've done book talks, is we had no idea this existed. You know, right. when I started doing uh, book talks for the Nesting Dolls, one of the good things of putting a book out during a pandemic, I will say, is I did so many Zoom book talks with places that I would not have traveled to. So that part of it, I'm actually super excited about it. I love Zoom bo uh, book talks. They're going to have to take those away from me by force because I love them so much. <laughs> and at the end of the talks, I would ask a question, which was, what was the first Jewish state of the 20th century? Mm. And most people's answer, I mean, some suspected it was a trick question, so they kept quiet, right. but most people's answers was Israel. So it just blew their minds to find out that Barabajan was a place that existed, much less where it existed, much less who it was created by. 
But I'll tell you a story. So the way actually the nesting dolls came about is I was talking to my then agent and she said to me, you know, this was about four years ago, she said, you know, Russia is really hot right now. And I said, I can't imagine why. I don't know what's going on in the world that would make Russia so hot right now. But then she also said, what I'm hearing from editors is they're getting tired of Holocaust stories. They think that they've told pretty much every World War II and Holocaust story possible. So I said, so you'd like me to write a story that takes place at the same time, roughly in the same place, but has Jews suffering somewhere else. And she said, yes. And I said, I can do that. So to answer your question, one of the things that fascinated me is I was pretty familiar with what like had been, life had been like for Soviet Jews in the 1930s in the big cities. As I said, I was born in Odessa. My parents were born in Odessa. Right. Um, my grandmother was born in Odessa. My grandfather actually was born in a small village on the outskirts of Odessa and came to Odessa. By the way, this is something I love to tell modern day readers. So 13 years old, 13 years old, he moved by himself from this village that here would, he'd been living in to Odessa, where he lived in a boarding house, mm. um, worked in a factory during the day, went to school at night, 13 years old. I mean, my daughter is 16 and I still check, you know, if she has a bus pass in the morning. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's, um, at 13 years old. So I knew what had been going on in the major cities, but I really didn't know what had been going on outside of it. So I was just as curious to learn as well. And not only did I have Masha Gessen's book, but my mother and I were able to track down a Yiddish language propaganda film that had been made in the Soviet Union. It was in Yiddish and Russian. And it had been made specifically to convince Jews and other people to emigrate to Barabajan. So it was fascinating to be able to see, because, you know, there's sources written, there's um, text written after the fact, like Masha's book, and there's right. primary sources done at the time. Yeah. So it was absolutely fascinating to see this movie where they claimed or they showed you that although obviously it wasn't filmed in Barabajan, but they showed you know rivers filled with fish the fish were so excited to be there that they were practically jumping out of the river into the nets and fields full of food and cows and um chickens and all of these things so it was an amazing thing it's called seekers of happiness it's found on youtube when you also do research during a pandemic you do most of your research on youtube and there's like yeah. a cornucopia of things to be found there. So it was just having all of these primary sources and then sources written after the fact that made me think this is, I honestly, I'm a huge reader. I'm a huge reader. I mean, I think all writers are readers, aren't yes, they? Yes. And a huge reader of historical fiction and family sagas. And I had never heard of this place. So I thought, mm. wow, this would be a really unique setting. For sure. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of times that you immigrated to the, to the U.S. and I think you told me in 1977. Yes. So how did your immigration story impact this book? I know it, I'm sure it's impacted the nesting dolls. Did it have an impact on this book as well? Well, it did because the framing device, I keep wanting to call it the modern day sequence, but then I realized it actually takes place in the 1980s and that's historical fiction yeah. too. And, and you know, I saw a meme which said, somebody said to me 40 years ago and I thought, ah, oh, yes, the 1950s. And then they said, no, the 1980s. And I had to go take a nap. So, yes. so in that respect, so it's not the modern time, it's the framing device yes. that takes place in the 1980s. And it does take place in San Francisco, which is probably 
primarily when I grew up in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco from the late 1970s mm-hmm. to the uh, early 1990s. So all of the descriptions are actually the San Francisco that's frozen in my mind because I actually haven't lived there since the early 90s. Right. And the immigrant parents and the characters, they are exactly the people who I grew up around and their attitudes are very much the attitudes of those people. So yes, now that the 1980s are historical, <laughs> I've written it from my own personal experience, which involved being a Soviet Jewish immigrant to San Francisco. Okay, interesting. Um, so what kind of research did you have to do to make sure that your book was authentic and accurate? Have you had a chance to visit Barabajan yourself? Well, no, pandemic. Let's, yes. let's, everything's going to come back to, well, no, pandemic. But in addition to the um, movie that I found that had been made in the 1930s, there are several documentaries online mm. that were done more recently. I believe there was one that was done in 2012. But here's the thing, though. I don't care for the purpose of this book, for other reasons I care. I don't care what Barabashan's like today. Yeah, Because that's really not where the story is set. The story is set in the 1930s in Barabajan, in the 1940s in a Soviet and American uh, prisoner of war camp, which was another topic that I found interesting because people didn't realize two things. First, a lot of people didn't realize that American and Soviet soldiers were held in the some, some, not always, but in some of the same German prisoner of war camps. You know, if it didn't happen on Hogan's Heroes, people don't realize that it happened. Mm. Um, And what people also don't realize is because the Soviets were not signatories to the Geneva Convention, their prisoners could be treated much, much more harshly than American prisoners. So I had actually done research as well about collaboration between American and Soviet prisoners to um, help them both survive. So that that was another thing. So the primary um, past sections are the 1930s in Barabajan, the 1940s in a German prison of war camp. The framing device, which takes place in the 1980s, is actually based on a trip that my mother and I took in 1988. Because as soon as Gorbachev comes to power and he initiates perestroika, he announces that now people who had left can come back to visit. Now, to be fair, the people who had left before could always come back to visit. There was just no guarantee that they'd be allowed to leave again. They could, they could always go in the other direction. So most people did not travel back to the Soviet Union because they were terrified they wouldn't be let out again. In 1988, under all the opening, um, the openness and perestroika and all that, you were allowed to go back. So my mother and I went back in 1988. Mm. We visited Moscow and we visited Odessa. And a lot of the events that happen in My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region that take place in the Soviet Union in 1988, are based on that visit. Okay. Well, yeah, that's great. I I do think even though things change, I think it's it's helpful to see a place for itself, depending on, you know, the, the scope of your book. And- well, the train station is still there. Actually, the oh. first uh, scene of My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region in yes. the 1930s section, which takes place at a train station, that train station is still there. It, it's been wow. modernized a little bit, but I was able to see video of that from the documentary in 2012, in addition to historical video that was shot at the time time as part of the propaganda effort. So I could see them both. Wow, that's so fascinating. That's amazing. You mentioned to me that there are parallels between your book and the current political situation. Can you expand on that? 
Well, as, as we talked about before, I'm always a little leery to talk about the current political situation, the word current being, it, it's such a fluid state right now. But one of the main things that does come up is you have in uh, My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region, there are characters who are in Birabajan. Some of them left because of the Holodomor, which was an artificial famine that Stalin created uh-huh. in Ukraine. Now, you yeah. have to keep in mind that at that time, the New York Times won a Pulitzer Prize for an essay explaining how, no, Stalin didn't do that at all. So we're also, p- people think we're in a uh, fake news era now, or <laughs> that the 20th century or the internet somehow has some kind of uh, moratorium on fake news, and right. that's not case. No, the New York Times didn't just write an article. They want a Pulitzer oh my goodness. for an article explaining how there was no famine in Ukraine. <laughs> um, but it does speak to the fact that, and, and in fact, my husband and I have this conversation. My husband is American and he was talking, he was saying something about the current situation and he made a reference to, you know, well, because this happened 10 years ago. And I'm like, dude, 10 years ago is nothing. It's the blink of an eye. I mean, even the 1930s are nothing. Um, Russia and Ukraine have a 500-year history. There's people who are working off of that. If you're going to make statements, 10 years ago is, is not even worth discussing. So that's one of the things that we're seeing. We're seeing that even almost 100 years ago, which was still just a blip in their history, you're seeing attacks from the Kremlin um, in Moscow on um, areas of Ukraine to the point where hundreds of thousands of people starve to death in not a natural disaster, but an artificially created famine. Right. Wow. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk somewhat about your career. You're a New York Times bestselling author. Um, so can you tell me about your path to publication and what your career has been like? Uh, well, it's been it's been the kind of thing that if an editor friend of mine said that if I described it as a fictional character, she would have said, that's not realistic. I don't think that's how things happen. So <laughs> we'll just start with that. So, you know, I was one of those people, one of those kids who knew I wanted to be a writer my entire life. My, my parents claim my first words were pencil and paper. That's probably <laughs> apocryphal. <laughs> but then I also had the little glitch where, you know, I had to learn English. I learned English at the age of seven, eight. Mm. But from the time that, you know, I was in high school, I was definitely sure, okay, I was going to be a novelist. And this is back in the days. We all remember when you had to print it out, your manuscript, you couldn't yes. just send it as an attachment. And you had to do it on a dot matrix printer, which went, you know, bzz, bzz, bzz. <laughs> if it got stuck, your entire book was printed on just one page. Oh, um, so yeah. I go back to those days. Now, What's a piece of advice that writers are always given? Writers are told. Right, we know. No, exactly. Here's the thing. What did I know? I knew about being a Soviet immigrant. I knew about the Soviet Union. So I would send these books out. And then also remember when you had to include a self-addressed stamped envelope, so you had to pay them you. Wasn't that fun? Yeah, I remember that too. Yep. Yeah. So, um, and everything kept coming back. You know, nobody cares. Russia doesn't sell. Mm. All of that. Then wow. I got a call from an editor at Avon Books who pulled me out of the slush. And she said the usual thing, um, Russia doesn't sell, blah, blah, blah. But she said, you clearly can write. And I usually publish my new authors in the genre of Regency romance, 
would you consider writing a Regency romance? And I said, sure. And I hung up the phone and I said, um, what's a Regency romance? Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, if it were today, I'd know because Bridgerton's like the hottest thing. Yeah. And my husband and my daughter watch it. Although, as I keep telling to the, saying to them, it's perhaps not exactly historically accurate with some of their <laughs> casting choices. But okay. So um, I went to the library. You know, I got eight books because I was that dweeby kid who knew what the maximum number of books you could check out at the library was. <laughs> Found out what a Regency romance was. And so now I'm thinking... Write what you know. What do I know about Regency England? Nothing. What do I know about Jews? I know about Jews. So I snuck some Jews into Regency England. Now, I did do research, and it was possible if you were wealthy enough and, you know, not too Jewish, um, then you could participate in the tone. So it's kind of – it's actually more possible than the casting on Bridgerton, let me put it that way. So um, – so I wrote a book and I, no, actually I didn't write a book. I wrote three chapters and an outline and I sent it to the editor and she called me and she said, I love it. I want the rest on my desk by next week. And oh. I said, it's not polished yet because that sounded better than it's not written yet. <laughs> so I pounded it out and I sent it to her and became my first published book by Avon called The Fictitious Marquis. And um, that came out in the summer of 1994. Okay, so after that, I did another Regency. It was called Thieves at Heart. That was the Regency, by the way, that closed the Avon Regency line December of uh, 1995. So I closed an entire line. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> then... <laughs> I moved on to, I did a couple of contemporary titles. Then I did a series of figure skating murder mysteries for um, Berkeley Prime Crime, because in my other life, I've had a lot of lives. As I said, it goes all over the place. I worked as a researcher for um, ABC Sports, and I covered world and European figure skating championships. And then I worked at the 1998 Olympics in Nagano. Oh, wow. So I did a series of figure skating murder mysteries. And well, did this have anything to do with um, Tanya Harding? And okay, well, funny and story. <laughs> funny you should ask that. In a roundabout way, kind of, because I was in Detroit in 1994 mm -hmm. when Nancy was hit on the knee. And I was in another part of the arena, but we heard about it. And all of us jokingly said, well, ha, 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 Tanya did it. We didn't mean it. <laughs> we were being funny. Um, we didn't realize what this was going to turn into. Yeah. But because of what it turned into, skating suddenly became really, really hot. Mm -hmm. So a lot more shows were being done. I mean, up to that point, they televised the Nationals. They televised the World Champ, obviously the Olympics. But the Nationals, the World Championships, maybe the European Championships, very little from the Grand Prix circuit, which is Skate America and Skate Canada and places like that. But then suddenly skating exploded. So, yes. In a roundabout way, mm -hmm. the editor that I worked with at Berkeley, Berkeley Prime Crime did want to do the skating mystery series because skating was so hot. So short right. answer, yes. But then remember how I killed um, the Regency romance line at um, Avon? <laughs> um, I also pretty much killed televised figure skating because I worked in the peak and then I watched it kind of trickle off. So mm. then... Wait, there's going to be more. I kill a lot of things. <laughs> then I went to work at Procter & Gamble Production. 
productions on two soap operas, As the World Turns and Guiding Light. And what I did for them was I wrote tie-in books that the characters in the story wrote. So there was a character who was an author on the air, but I wrote the book that was released in real life. Got that? Oh, okay. And that, that book was a New York Times bestseller. I did two books for As the World Turns. I did one book for Guiding Light. And then I killed soap operas because while I worked there, um, Guiding Light and As the World Turns were canceled. And then I went to work for All My Children and One Life to Live on ABC and they were canceled. So, wow. <laughs> lest you think I am a harbinger of doom, not a harbinger of doom, I am. I really am. So, I went through all of those things, and that brings us up to the conversation about Jews suffering in different places. So I have done I have done Regency romance, I have done contemporary romance, I have done cozy mysteries, I have done soap opera tie-ins, and now my last two books were historical fiction. Although, to be fair, one of the reasons that I started in romance to begin with is because I wanted to eventually move into the family saga and the historical fiction space. Mm. And there's a lot of romance and a lot of overlap and mystery too. I mean, I think that's the great thing about family sagas is they can have romance, they can have mystery they can have everything. Yeah, I you're right. It it is. So so the genre the genre you're writing in now is really what you've always hoped to write. Is that what you're right. saying? I just took a really long and not particularly direct <laughs> way to get there. Well, you've had a lot of experience in different genres, I guess. So, you know, you can use it all. I know The Nesting Dolls, your previous book was published by HarperCollins, and I'm wondering how you went from it's it's not that you killed Harper Collins, so um, give me time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering how, how you went from that that publisher to um, history through fiction. Published this one, and um, I know that releasing it during the pandemic probably was was not the gra- the greatest move. But here's something that I will say. So I had a very positive relationship with Harper Collins. I had a positive relationship with the editor. I had a positive relationship with the PR department. Everybody did exactly what they were supposed to do. But H- Harper Collins releases how many titles a month? A hundred <sighs> titles a month. The the publicist who was terrific, she did absolutely everything she was supposed to do. She was working with me and hundreds of other authors. Right. I wanted to see what it would be like to work with a micro publisher. First of all, history through fiction does exactly what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Tell fictional stories about real historical times and places and events. And second of all, they only publish a couple of times a year. So I really had the undivided attention when it came to the copy editing, when it came to the cover, when it came to the marketing, everything was focused on me. And I just wanted to have that experience because I've done pretty much everything. I've done paperback originals. I've Mm -hmm. done hardbacks through a major house. I've, um, I've published, self-published two titles because, as I mentioned to you um, earlier, I also write about education, which is a whole other part of my life that I didn't even get into. (laughs) But I wrote books on getting into kindergarten in New York City and getting into high school in New York City. And I published those books myself because my feeling with those were I knew where my audience was better than any general publisher ever would. So I pretty much done all of it. And with My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region, I wanted to see what it would be like to work with a micro publisher who really 
only published one type of title. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's been a very different experience, I guess. It, yes and no, because as I said, with HarperCollins, they did they did the mailings, the ARC mailings, and they did um, sending to reviewers and all of that. And of course, shelving. I'm not going to pretend that shelf space isn't incredibly important. Right, right. But when it came to marketing and promotion... I still did most of it myself. Like if I was going to get coverage in a local newspaper or someone mm-hmm. went Jewish press, I still did all of that outreach myself. So I came into My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region and history through fiction with all the experience of already having reached out to synagogue book, book clubs and to Jewish publications and to Hadassahs and to sisterhoods. Yeah. So I kind of just, just like with my education books, where I knew where my audience of parents was, I felt like I had a really good grasp of where my audience of Jewish historical fiction readers was. And so I took the experience from the nesting dolls and Harper Collins, and I brought it to my mother's secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region and history through fiction. So in that sense, the experience was actually incredibly similar. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So what are you working on next? I'm working on a couple of things. Next, I have a book on submission, which is called Stepmother Russia, which actually mm. deals a lot more with the present day situation. It has a historical piece to it, but their present day is actually present day, not the um, the 80s. So it uh, deals with oligarchs and what kind of culture, what Russia has turned into. So that's the book that's out on submission. I also have a series, as I mentioned before, so I used to work for soaps and and I killed a few soaps here and Mm -hmm. there along the way. But now I also work for a website called Soap Hub, where I serialize, I call it, it's a soap opera about soap opera. So we're going back to the ways that soaps were done even before uh, television and radio. We're going back to the Dickens days of serialization. So I serialized a soap opera about soap operas on Soap Hub called Go On Pretending, which actually takes place in the early days of radio soap operas. Speaking of something that people also don't know, is people don't realize that the genre of serialized storytelling, which which today isn't just daytime soap operas, every primetime show is serialized, not just, you know, your Grey's Anatomy or the ones that call themselves soaps, but think of something like Friends or Mad About You, even sitcoms are serialized. Mm-hmm. And all of that was created by a woman out of Chicago by the name of Erna Phillips. Basically, television today wouldn't exist looking the way that it looks mm-hmm. if it weren't for a woman named Erna Phillips who worked for Procter & Gamble, who invented the soap opera genre and pretty much invented commercial television and certainly invented um, commercial radio that targeted women. And so a lot of her shows started on the radio. Then they went into um, television. And so Go On Pretending on Soap Hub is a serial about a serial about the history of serials. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great. So this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Well, here's the thing. Um, As I mentioned, I write about educational policy. My husband is a teacher. So we're that sexy, sexy couple that has pillow talk about education and education (laughs) policy and, and how kids should be taught. And one of the things that I've always wondered from the time I was a kid 
is why history is taught in such a dry and boring manner when yeah. history A is a soap opera and it's certainly the best serial ever, ever created with some of the best characters. So I'm a big believer that the best way to learn anything. Well, my husband's a math teacher. I don't know how you can quite turn that into stories, but let's focus on the important subjects. Okay. (laughs) So let's talk about history is that the best way to teach history is not just through what happened when, but who it happened to Mm -hmm. and how they felt about it. Because anybody can empathize in a way that, you know, the War of 1812, okay, there's the words, the War of 1812. That tells me nothing. Don't even tell me, I mean, tell me what sides were on it and who the leaders were, but tell me how it affected the people on the ground. I think it's, um, is it about the musical, The Fantastics, that people say that The Fantastics is the story of what happens on the banks while the river of history goes through? Mm. And I think that's what historical fiction is. Historical fiction doesn't just tell you what happened, where it happened, when it happened. It tells you to whom it happened, and it tells you the consequences, and it tells you how they felt about it. And that, to me, is really the best way to learn anything. Yes. Yeah, I agree. So this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, I am alinaadams.com. That's my website. I am on Instagram as I am Alina Adams. I am on Twitter as I am Alina Adams. Mm-hmm. And I'm on Facebook as either I, Alina Adams Media or my personal page. It's Alina Siverinovsky Wickham. You can see why my first editor maybe didn't want me to use my actual <laughs> last name. Something about Siverinovsky didn't scream Regency England to her. But Aww. on <laughs> Facebook, on Facebook, I am Alina Siverinovsky Wickham. And also, this is something that I actually developed during the pandemic when I was doing all my book talks on Zoom is if, as I said, if this were in the before times, I would have been honored to sign your book. But since that is not possible, if somebody just emails me at alinaadams at gmail.com and tells me who they would like a book plate autograph to, I can do that and I can pop it in the mail and that way we can pretend we had a human interaction. But that's uh, that's something I've been doing. I've got signed book plates and if somebody somebody says, you know, could you sign it to my mother? Could you sign it to my daughter? I'm happy to do that as well. And that's just alinaadams at gmail.com. Nothing clever. Okay, great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that really informative conversation with Alina Adams. I'm just always amazed. There are so many parts of history that I knew nothing about. And whenever I have an author on to talk about something new. I just am astounded. It's really amazing. So as always, you can find the show notes either in your listening app or at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to Alina's book and places to follow her as well as other helpful links and ways that you can help the show. Now, one way I would like to ask you to help the show is to sign up for my newsletter and you can get there from the show notes. There's a link to my newsletter sign up um, or you can just get there on my website, alisontreat.com. It's really easy and I would love to share all my news with you. Um, Everything from 
what I'm reading recently and whether I like what I'm reading recently, as well as what I'm researching for my works in progress. You'll get all of that in a weekly newsletter when you sign up for my mailing list. And you'll also get some freebies, um, some of my writing samples. So make sure you join my list. It's lots of fun. Well, friends, I'm going to close out with a quote from the famous Jew, Ben Zoma from the first and second centuries AD. He said, who is wise? One who learns from every man. Who is strong? One who overpowers his inclinations. Who is rich? One who is satisfied with his lot. Who is honorable? One who honors his fellows. So take that to heart, my friends, and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week. 